0: Welcome to The Reference Desk, a podcast where two librarians take you down the rabbit hole of the topics that have bewitched us.
1: So adjust the chain on your reading glasses, button up your favorite cardigan, and follow us punk-ass book jockeys through the stacks to The Reference Desk.
0: Hi, welcome to The Reference Desk. I'm Katie. And I'm Haley. (laughs) And this is part two. Hooray. (laughs) Yes, part two of the Bly Balloon Bomb Tragedy is the working title of what we're going with.
1: But That's a mouthful.
0: It really is. And like as I'm going through, I was like, this is like 15 different stories in one, but you know
1: (laughs) That's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with something like this when like the time and the topic it's so sensitive that you don't want to leave anything out. I know.
0: Yes, and as I was just sitting down to record, um, my calendar popped up and said, "You know, this is the first day of AAPI History Month." So, oh
1: wow,
0: <laughs> this is. This, I'm I'm happy that we're recording
1: <laughs> this episode when we are. <laughs> yeah. Good timing. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, how are you? I'm pretty good. Good. Pretty good, yeah. We spent the weekend at my parents. Okay. Um, we celebrated my dad's fifth year of sobriety on Phenomenal. Friday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so incredibly proud of him. So we had a nice celebration and went to dinner, and we all pitched in and got him. A new, uh, like, really nice sound system for his. My dad's a musician, and he he goes and plays like gigs or what? Whatever. What What do the kids call them these days? I think they're gigs, right? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, Uh, but we got him a new. (laughs) Yeah, sets. Uh, (laughs) We got him a new uh, portable sound system for that. So he was so surprised. Aw, yay! Yeah, that was fun.
0: Hooray! Congrats!
1: <laughs> what about you?
0: I had to work on Saturday, so it's been a weekend. Um, and like everywhere, literally everywhere, we're short staffed. So, <laughs> uh-huh. oh. um, so I'm tired, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm 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 happy to be, be recording with you, Katie.
1: <laughs> Me too. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Okay.
0: um so i feel like this might be the more interesting part of this
1: whole <laughs> story so I-, I thought the first part was interesting hooray okay i think we went a little off the rails oh wow we did <laughs> yeah yeah we sh- we sure did yeah yeah <laughs> Do you want to give us
0: maybe like a quick recap? Yeah, yeah. So um, in the first part of this episode, um, we talked about um, the attack on Pearl Harbor and how America officially entered into um, World War II. Um, We also met a few different people. One of them was uh, Yuzuru Takeshita, whose family was one of over 100,000 Japanese Americans who were incarcerated after Pearl Harbor. Um, and we learned about the Japanese plan to manufacture a weapon in which to bomb America on mainland soil. Um, and though they had several weapons, you know, in various stages of development, including a death ray. Uh <laughs> which is just I guess they never um made that happen unless they have it and it's just a secret. Who knows? It could be. Yeah, they have a death ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh the the option that they went with the one that they thought was most promising was balloon bombs um that would (laughs) use the jet stream uh to float to america Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, the balloon bomb project was known as Fugo. And after several test runs and research launches, in order to gauge time and temperature readings and all the science stuff that you need. <laughs> all that stuff. Um they learned that if the balloons were launched between November and March from certain locations that they would in fact be able to travel the jet stream and make it across the ocean. Wow. Um but they also learned that only about 10% of the balloons would make it across the ocean.
1: <laughs> oh my god. So what do you do? Do you just send a ton? Uh-huh. Okay. All right.
0: Yeah. yeah. So um, their plan was to manufacture uh, more than 10,000 balloon bombs and launch them at a rate of 100 balloons a day. Oh,
1: my God. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 so <laughs> many balloons. I know. It's just mm. – and I keep thinking, you know, like when you say balloon bomb, I don't know if you're picturing in your head like just a tiny helium balloon. But like, no, they're like hot air balloon sized. Yeah,
1: balloons. so uh, that's what I keep going back and forth between <laughs> is like nor- like balloon sized balloons. And then I'm picturing like the wizard from the Wizard of Oz, <laughs> like <laughs> sailing across the ocean. Essentially, yes, that's what's happening. Um,
0: <laughs> so in order to manufacture these. 10,000 balloons, the Japanese military needed, of course, both an enormous amount of labor and materials, both of which are in incredibly short supply because, you know, war. Um, and
1: they're an island nation. <laughs> yes, yes. Really hard to get things. things for sure.
0: Um, so in <laughs> in order to make the balloons as cheaply as possible, they turned to a lightweight, strong, and inexpensive material,
1: Japanese washi paper oh my god
0: they're made out of washi
1: oh my god yeah well no wonder only 10 percent of them make it
0: (laughs) yes yeah so you know washi tape that you use in your bullet journals yeah um other uses balloon bombs Uh
1: (laughs) wow that's incredible
0: (laughs) yeah So they're also going to need nearly 50 million cubic feet of hydrogen gas to fill the 10,000 balloons. Um, The hydrogen generators would need 50,000 tons of raw materials to produce the necessary gas, plus water. Um, And they would also need manila rope uh, at a length of roughly 10 million feet (laughs) for the rigging. Oh, my God. And 170 million square feet of washi would be required <gasps> to make
1: the balloons. Oh, my God. Well, I guess when you fold it up, it'd probably only be like a few <laughs> inches. <laughs> All right. It was up real small.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just to get, you know, a really clear picture of exactly what these balloons look like, here's a picture. Um- <gasps> oh, my God. Yes. So these balloons were 33 feet in diameter. They could lift approximately a thousand pounds, um, but they were mainly carrying uh, 33 pound fragmentation bombs attached to a 64 foot long fuse that was intended to burn for 82 minutes before detonating. Oh, my God. So the way the balloon worked is they would float across the jet stream, and as they ran out of helium, they would lose altitude. And once they reached a certain altitude, it would ignite the fuse, and then the fuse would last for eighty-two minutes, and then boom, bomb. Mm. So.
1: It looks like like a hot air balloon with like old timey bank robber money bags <laughs> just just <laughs> hanging from it. Yeah. It's so bizarre looking. Yeah, it's real weird. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow, it's kind of incredible, though.
0: I know! And, like, to devise a mechanism that knows exactly how high the balloon is, and it's just... Mm -hmm. And then it's
1: 1942,
0: (laughs) 43, 44, somewhere, it's the
1: 40s. (laughs) Things like this just make me realize, like, how... M- more intelligent other people are than myself
0: yeah yeah like even as i'm like researching these things and writing them in i'm like i don't know what any of this means
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh
0: i need the balloon bomb for idiots and then <laughs> and then i'll explain it um. oh so, those are the balloons. We know kind of what each balloon needs. We know that they need over 10,000 balloons to make this a success. Um, but who is going to manufacture these balloons? Because it's wartime.
1: Children. Children. Oh my God, no. Yes, of course. Children. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> jeez. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're of exactly right, Katie. Of I'm sorry.
0: Whoa. So, according to an article in the uh, Japanese Studies Journal, quote, Japanese boys and girls were increasingly pulled out of secondary school to help the war effort as factory and farm workers. Their labor service hours kept increasing until by January 1944, many students were working year-long shifts.
1: Wow. Um, I mean, that's what they're trying to do in some states right now here. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, God. You get no, you get no childhood and you get nope. no retirement. Your entire life is just work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. yep, yep, yep. <sighs> I hate it. Hooray. Hooray. Hmm. So at this time, Japan was governed by military rule, and Japanese children were taught from a very young age that they were to serve their country by whatever means was asked of them. By the age of 15, military service was required. There is a woman named Tetsuko Tanaka, who at the time was 15 in 1944, and she had dreams of being a ballerina. Uh, But she was recruited into serving her country first by farming and then in helping to manufacture the paper for the balloon bomb project. Mm. Her school, the Yamaguchi Girls High School, dropped several of their classes in order for the girls to contribute to the war effort. Of this time, Tetsuko says, quote, My education stressed contributing to the war effort and being a patriot. We were ordered not only to work, but to lay down our lives for our country.
1: Fifteen.
0: Fifteen. She just wants to be a ballerina, and she has to do this. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: Tetsuko's school was uh, only one of many around Japan that were mobilized specifically in order to serve the Fugo Project. Uh, the, The girls were sworn to secrecy, and they weren't even allowed to tell their families what they were working on.
1: How do you trust a fifteen year old girl to keep a secret, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh my God. So uh, on Friday, we were on my way to my parents' house, and Rory asked what we got grantu, that's what she calls my dad uh-huh. for his uh sober birthday. <laughs> and um, I was like, well, if I tell you, you have to promise to keep it a surprise." Mm. And she said, "You better not tell me then." <laughs> smart girl I know smart oh my goodness
0: (laughs) amazing yeah you can't tell kids anything so Mm -mm. I don't I just yeah sworn to secrecy um, so those schools who didn't have the capabilities to manufacture these balloons on-site sent their girls to factories instead where they were housed in dormitories in mostly terrible conditions. Um, and they would work 10 to 15-hour shifts every day. Uh, one such location where girls were sent was Okuno, which was actually a chemical weapons plant. Um on a, an island, and it was so secret that it had been removed from all Japanese maps. What? Uh-huh. So imagine like, <laughs> your kid coming home and be like, so they're sending me somewhere. I can't tell you where they're sending me, but I'm going to go live at this place and
1: make something. I'm not allowed to tell you what I'm making. Bye. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right? You will be hidden in the basement right? for the duration of the war. Yeah, yeah. That's – oh, my God. Oh, yeah. my God.
0: Going to a place that doesn't exist on a map. <gasps> Bye. Oh Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one young girl who was just 13 years old named Raiko Okada, along with uh, her classmates at Tadanumi Girls High School, was sent to Okuna uh, for balloon production. Okada was uh, one of over 600 girls who worked there they were also sworn to secrecy and were searched each day at the end of their shift to make sure they were not bringing anything other than their personal belongings with them.
1: Um, what, what are they going to take? <laughs> who are they going to get it to when they're on an island? Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't exist. On that doesn't exist. I'm going to guess that there's probably not postal service from an <laughs> unplotted <laughs> island. <laughs> oh
0: boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um. At Okuna, the girls were also tasked with packing boxes, sealing smoke bombs, and mixing chemicals, which, <gasps> uh, if you listen to Katie's episode on the Radium Girls, you might have guessed, was toxic to their health. <laughs> no. Yeah. And they had no idea that mm. they were being affected.
1: That's horrific. I mean, mm-hmm. the the ra- story of the Radium Girls was t- so tragic. hmm But – at least those women had a choice in going to take that right. job. They didn't know right. what it was, but they were adults who were getting paid for a job and not yep. being forced to do it by yeah. their country. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Yeah. I love this, Haley. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: but balloon making was their number one job and the job was very similar in how it was done whether it was done in schools or in factories. So the process was essentially the same. So washi is made from the bark of the Kozo tree. Um, And if you've ever seen washi tape, you know it's real thin. (laughs)
1: Uh Uh,
0: So several layers of washi needed to be pasted together to reach a desired thickness using a paste made from the konjac root, flour, and water. Uh, And that paste needed to be stirred for a few hours. No big deal. Mm. Just stir paste for a couple hours. No big deal. (laughs) Nah. Nah. We're fine. So these uh, sheets of the multi-layered paper and here's uh, uh, some, there's a picture of the uh, production and how they're assembling the sheets together Mm. and then a drawing that was done by um, Raiko, who I mentioned earlier, who was at Akuna. Wow. This
1: Those is her are drawing. Babies.
0: Yeah. Mm. So the two sheets of the multi layered paper were about six by three feet. Uh, and then they were laid down and glued together side by side to make panels. Um, and to make sure that there were no tiny bubbles trapped between the layers, each sheet had to be brushed out and then dried completely before being able to glue the next piece. So it's super time intensive.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: One teenager describes the work as, quote, more difficult than you could ever imagine.
1: Yeah, I bet just mind numbingly boring, Mm -hmm. but so like physically intensive for so long. Yeah, yeah.
0: Finally, in January of 1945, the girls from the schools and the factories were sent to Kokura Arsenal in Tokyo to watch the first balloon inflate uh, and to continue making the balloons at the largest factory. So this was like the place that they manufactured the majority of the balloons Mm. and most of the girls were then sent there um, so that they could
1: make the balloons around the clock. Yeah, so nice that they gave them that little field trip to see the balloon launch first.
0: Hooray. <laughs> um at the balloon wa- launch they wore white headbands that read Student Special Attack Force. <gasps> um and were made to march in lines like the military and sing the war song Our Blood Runs Red.
1: Ooh. Just chilling kind of like. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. It's giving the Hitler youth vibes.
0: I mean, they're on the same side.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, so uh, Tetsuka says, "quote I was shocked by the size of the factory. Everywhere, metal drying boards were revolving on steam blasting machines that dried them. The noise was deafening." Uh, after the girls, or after the display of the balloon launch, the girls returned to their dormitory um, that had no heat uh, in January. In Japan, <laughs> um, and they were allowed to sleep for a little bit before they were awoken at four thirty a.m. for breakfast, uh, and then they walked over a mile in straight uniform lines to take over for the overnight shift workers.
1: This is horrendous. Yeah, this is this is like just another form of incarceration. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh.
0: Um, Do I have another? No, I don't. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) Um, Tetsuka says, quote, the floor was muddy with the extra paste that always seemed steamed off the drying boards. From above, steam condensed into water droplets and fell on us. Each person was in charge of two drying boards. The paper dried very quickly, so you shuttled back and forth between them like a crab. (gasps) If it got too dry, then it would crack and fail the quality test. That was unforgivable. So we ran barefoot across the pasty floor. Oh, my God. The girls suffered fungal infections on their feet. And they worked all day and night in dark, dank rooms with blacked out windows because secrecy. Uh, Tetsuka says that she never remembers eating lunch. Um she says, quote, when we returned to our dorm, we gulped down our food, little as it was. We had sweet potatoes that were sometimes old and turned black and smelled strange. Mixed with rice, you got one rice bowl full of that and one cup of miso soup, nothing added. No vegetables, nothing. It wasn't enough food to sustain us at the work we had to do.
1: And these are girls. Yeah. They're just babies. Teenage girls. Yeah. Who are at the point in their lives when they eat the most food imaginable. Yes. Mm.
0: After the washi was layered together um, and then the sheets were pasted together to make larger sheets, uh, they were then treated to dissolve any fibers that may make the paper weak. Um, And then they were coated in glycerin and then a waterproof lacquer that would also hold up to the hydrogen exposure. Um, And then the final step was to assemble the large two hemispheres of the balloon together before being lacquered again. And then they were sent off somewhere else to have the incendiary devices placed. So Mm. they weren't around the bombs.
1: Well, thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then finally, all of the balloons were ready to launch. The special balloon regiment was formed and gas facilities were set up. Uh, balloons were to launch from Atsu, Ichinomiya, and Nakosa. And balloons began launching on November 3rd, 1945. Okay. Yeah. So they're off. It's what's happening. So the United States were expecting retaliation from Japan, but they weren't sure exactly what form that would take and i think it's kind of safe to say they weren't expecting balloons
1: right yeah like
0: probably wasn't top of mind
1: death ray maybe but death ray. not yeah. balloons yeah for sure <laughs> <sighs> um so when the
0: sightings first began happening the military was rightly confused <laughs> The first balloon was found just one day after launch uh, on November 4th. And it was found by a U.S. Navy ship who pulled it from the water. It was almost on shore in California. <gasps> that was fast. Yes. Yeah. One day. And there's already one that's almost there.
1: Oh, my gosh. They really knew what they were doing with that jet stream.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another was found days later in Hawaii. Uh, And then the civilian sightings began. (sighs) On December 11th, a father and son working outside in Montana called the Air Force to report that they had found a downed parachute or possibly a weather balloon. In January, one of the balloons got caught in power lines at Hanford Nuclear Plant, Coincidentally, where plutonium was being <gasps> secretly manufactured for the Manhattan Project. Ooh. You know, the atomic bomb that would later be dropped on two cities in Japan. Mm-hmm. So that's a little weird tidbit. Yeah. Um, so, but so far, none of the bombs are going off. They're hmm. just the balloons. Or if they do, they're not causing fires. They're not causing any destruction. Okay. Um. Preliminary research led the military to conclude that these balloons were from Japan and uh, they did contain incendiary devices. Um, they believed that they were being launched from submarines um, mm-hmm. until they discovered the mechanism that indicated the balloons were capable of traveling long distances. Authorities were placed on high alert, but of course the public was not notified
1: because you can't do that. No, heaven forbid you tell them, like, hey, (laughs) stay away from these things if you happen to see one.
0: Right? Right? Um, So here's how many sightings there were um oh my gosh just within a couple months so they continued to be discovered across north america with sightings and partial or full recoveries in alaska arizona california colorado hawaii idaho iowa kansas michigan what? montana yes <laughs> nebraska nevada north dakota oregon <gasps> south dakota texas utah washington wyoming like, they are reaching places. Wow. <laughs> There's even some in Canada and in Mexico.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: By August 1945, U- U.S. Army intelligence recorded 285 balloon incidents. Um, so the balloons are, you know, definitely hitting their intended targets, but so far no damage. Hmm. Uh, And because they weren't causing damage, the military was having trouble figuring out the intended purpose of these devices. So they knew that there was some form of incendiary device, but they also thought, like, is this chemical warfare or biological warfare? Like, what is happening here? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, because they're not – I mean, they're not blowing up, so Mm -hmm. what are they doing? So defense strategies were put into place. Uh Air Force and Navy pilots were instructed to shoot down any balloons spotted in the air. Uh and smoke fighters, which is just the coolest name ever.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. They're like
0: firefighters, but they're called smoke fighters. Oh, what do they do? Um they uh were mobilized to put out any fires that erupted in like the forests and stuff. So they worked with the uh the forestry service as well. Okay. Um But there, you know, didn't seem to be any that had started as a direct
1: result of these balloons. Hmm. That's really wild. Yeah. Yeah. You think at least one would work? Yeah.
0: A then classified video made for the Navy to help identify these balloons uh, ended with... The wording on screen saying, quote, any balloons approaching the United States from outside its borders can be enemy attacks against the nation. Information that the balloons have reached this country and particularly what section they have reached is information of value to the enemy. Please do not aid the enemy by publishing or broadcasting or discussing such information without appropriate authority. So I guess their fear is if they leaked it to the public. Japan mm-hmm. would get word of it and know that it was working, at least that they were reaching America, mm-hmm.
1: and would continue to manufacture them. Okay. Okay. I mean, like, it makes sense, but I still yeah. don't like it. I know. Yeah. Mm. Um.
0: So one of their defense strat- strategies was, of course, to keep it entirely hush-hush. But... Of course, some word did get out through the media because it's the media. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when the Japanese heard that some of the balloons had actually made it to the United States, they released their own propaganda to their people claiming, quote, 10,000 people have been killed. One of our weapons caused great fires and damage. Each of our secret type balloons can carry several persons and the day is not far distant when we will land sever- several million Japanese troops on American
1: soil. No. So no. Like, yes. They're going to put strap people to these
0: balloons. I think it's all bullshit propaganda stuff, but they're yeah. like telling their
1: people like we can fit people in balloons and we're going to take them over. Oh like, my god, but like airplanes exist. <laughs> Why really would do. they have to travel by balloon? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs>
0: like, I feel like war just makes people so dumb. <laughs>
1: yeah, and it's such a good example of like just how dangerous not having, like, free media and journalism is, mm-hmm. and when you can control the flow of information, I mean, you could you can make people believe anything.
0: Absolutely.
1: That's it's so terrifying. scary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so, rumors of these balloon bombs even made it all the way to Tule Lake Incarceration Camp, where Yuzuru Takeshita and his family were now detained. Oh, Wow. So, if you remember from the first part, Yuzuru and his family, including seven brothers and sisters and his parents, had been detained first at um, an assembly center that was just a horse track Mm -hmm. for four months before being sent to Topaz, which was an incarceration camp in Utah. So, here's Topaz. Um, You can see the barracks. um, And then the bottom left is a recreation uh, that – is in the Topaz Museum
1: right now. Oh my um, God, Haley, I read that as recreation.
0: Oh god. Trying
1: to figure out like what was in this room that was considered recreational. Beds, sleep. Your
0: sleep is yeah. recreation. Yeah. Ta da. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Because of course at the end of the war they completely demolished all of these. So, you know, trying to keep mm-hmm. everything hush hush. Yeah. Um, They were at the Assembly Center, um, I think it was Tanforan, for four months, and then they were sent to Topaz. Mm The... I think um, Yuzuru's younger brother, Ben, talks about being on the train going to Topaz. They weren't told where they were going. The windows were blocked out so they couldn't see anything. Um, So it was, you know, it was very scary. They had no idea where they were being shipped off to or how long that was going to take, you know, Mm -hmm. just all around terrible. Yes. And Topaz was still under construction when many families began arriving, and so detainees were tasked with helping to complete construction on their own prison.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Super awesome. (sighs) Oh,
0: Topaz was made up of almost 20,000 acres, and 640 of those were designated for living spaces. There were 34 residential blocks and Uh, Each block was able to house 250 to 300 people, um, and there were 12 barracks per block. Mm. Uh, The Topaz Museum, which is located near the historic site, uh, describes the inside of the barracks like this. Furniture for the rooms only included army cots, mattresses, and blankets. Residents constructed chairs, tables, and shelves out of scrap lumber left lying around the camp. The barracks, crudely constructed of pine planks covered with tar paper as the only insulation and sheetrock on the inside, provided little protection against the extreme weather of this semi-arid climate. The first killing frost was recorded at the end of September 1942, and the first snowfall was on October 13th. (sighs) The winter temperatures in the area typically hover near or below zero, and in the summer they soar to a hundred degrees. The desert just sounds awful. This like, wh- yeah. This sounds like the you- worst
1: possible location. Oh. oh, oh.
0: S- <sighs> and um they continue saying some of the rooms had no windows and no roof when the camp opened. Oh my god. Yeah. Um the only running water. Uh, was in the bathrooms or the mess halls, um which there was only one
1: of each per block <laughs> just, one bathroom,
0: yeah, for I mean it's like and they were just toilets next to each other, uh, like uh, no stalls, no I mean, it's disgusting,
1: uh,
0: like there is no privacy at
1: all, and, yeah, yeah, and these are American citizens who have done mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. But exist. Yep. Mm -hmm. We're great. Yeah. Um, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Um,
0: Yuzuru's younger brother, Ben, uh, says of the time there, quote, we knew we were confined in this prison and the guards were pointing guns at us, but we couldn't do anything about it. So we did our best to survive and enjoy life as best we could. We played marbles and the older kids formed teams and played against the other blocks. And we played mostly softball. So, they're just kids. Like yeah. over a yeah. third of the detainees were, or those incarcerated were children. Mm. So hooray. Wow. Um, there were three schools within Topaz two elementary schools and one junior senior high school. So Yuzuru was able to finish junior high and was asked to be one of the main speakers at the graduation ceremony, where he spoke about being optimistic for the future and said that he still had, quote, faith in our American system and keeping hopes high in adversity. How? How? <laughs> like, how?
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the Takeshita family was incarcerated at Topaz for one year before they were involuntarily moved again in September of 1943. Uh, And that was because in January of that year, anyone of Japanese descent who was over the age of 17 was required to answer a loyalty questionnaire. The purpose of the questionnaire was to determine who would be allowed to leave the concentration camps and who would serve in the military.
1: No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um
0: so the questionnaire asked private details like information on citizens foreign investments, the names of the magazines and newspapers they subscribed to and if they knew any foreign languages. Though they only listed Japan as a foreign language. So they're just asking if they know Japanese. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but questions 27 and 28 were particularly tricky. So question 27 read, Are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty wherever ordered?
1: Nope. <laughs> I,
0: just, I just can't. No. I know. Right? <laughs> um, so – uh, Tanya Stone, who wrote *Pieces of Chain Reaction*, which is, you know, my staff pick in the book that all of this information is coming from mostly, um, she says the War Department. This is just ridiculous. The War Department wanted to know how many people who were being held against their will by their own government were willing to leave their lives behind and fight for that same government in the war.
1: <laughs> Fucking unbelievable! Yeah, yeah. The audacity. Yeah.
0: <sighs> um. Ben Tekesta uh, said, "Now, if you were a young mother with kids, how could they, if they were responsible parents, how could they answer this? Yes, and serve mm-hmm. on combat duty wherever ordered." And also a father who had young kids uh, was responsible for the family. How would he be willing to or be able to answer this on combat duty wherever ordered? So there was a lot of rumors about how to answer this question. And Mm. I remember rumors that this was one way the United States was going to try to get rid of us by sending us all to combat duty. Mm. So there was a lot of questions as to how to answer that question. And sure. it made it incredibly difficult for many to answer yes or no to that question. So on yeah. one hand, you're like, we are being incarcerated behind against our will. So no, we're not going to go fight for you. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, what happens if we say no? Right.
1: Like, yeah. Yeah. It feels, it feels like a trick question. Yes. 100%. Because they have no agency. So yes. it, it doesn't matter what they say.
0: Right. It's going to be wrong either way. Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm.
0: As for question 28, this one is almost worse. Um, it's asked Will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any and all attack from foreign or domestic forces, and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor or any other foreign government power or organization? So, by saying "Will you forswear allegiance to the Japanese emperor?" means that you have already sworn allegiance to the Japanese emperor, right? And mo- almost, you know, a-, a lot of these were second-generation Japanese Americans, so mm-hmm. they were born in America. They didn't give a fuck about the Japanese emperor. Like, right. so how do you answer that question? <laughs> Mm. If you answer yes, are you admitting that you at one point <laughs> were yes. allegiance to the Japanese emperor? Like it's impossible.
1: Yeah, there needs to be far more space on this form than just that little line. <laughs> like I I would have like a page to write. Right? Oh my gosh!
0: Yeah, um. So Ben again when interviewed about this, um, and he was interviewed by the Den Show, um, organization. So mm. it's the Den Show organization is phenomenal. Um, look them up; they're really good. <laughs> um, and so Ben says many people who lived in the United States were born in the United States, and they had no idea who the Japanese emperor was. Of course, our parents knew because they were born in Japan and had immigrated legally to the United States. But if you answer this yes, then that means that at one time you had sworn allegiance to the Japanese emperor, and now you're swearing allegiance to the United States. So besides, our parents – were Japanese citizens born in Mm -hmm. Japan and they were forbidden by American alien land law in 1924 so they could not become American citizens even though they wanted to Mm. and they could not own property. So it became a dilemma because like my parents, if they answered it yes, they would be a person without a country because if they answer yes, they're not American citizens, Mm -hmm. the older generation. But now they're, you know, not going to be Japanese citizens either. So they have no country.
1: That's real scary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the Takeshita family decided together to answer no to both of these questions. Wow. But they, along with others who answered no to both questions, were in the minority. Hmm. Um, according to the Densho organization, the people who answered no or refused to answer or qualified their responses were branded disloyal and dubbed no-nos. The WRA moved to segregate them from the rest of the incarcerated population.
1: No, I
0: hate this.
1: Mm-hmm. I hate this. Mm-hmm. These are the worst test questions ever written. Yes,
0: yeah. Um, so I I first heard about this questionnaire in the book, um, I think it's, I have it on my recommended reads too, and I've talked about it before, but We Are Not, or yeah, We Are Not Free by Tracy Chi. Mm-hmm. It's a phenomenal YA historical fiction, um, but it goes kind of in depth about this questionnaire and, and how even those who answered no, no were kind of ostracized by the the interned citizens Mm -hmm. who answered yes, because they were afraid like to, you know, commingle with them and what is that going to mean? And so it just, oh, it just caused so many terrible things. So because Tule Lake incarceration camp, uh, their capacity um, and its high number of incarcerees who had given the wrong answers to questions 27 and 28, uh, that camp was now going to be designated as the site where no no's from all 10 camps would be concentrated. Under pressure from Congress, the Army, and the Japanese American Citizens League, Tule Lake was officially rebranded a segregation center as of July 15, 1943. 12,000 segregees were moved to Tule Lake, while some 6,500 Japanese-Americans who had supplied the desired responses were relocated to other WRA camps. Uh, Tule Lake was a maximum security prison. Mm. It it was not a camp. It was a maximum security prison.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. It was armed with tanks. Seven foot high barbed wire fences and 28 guard towers. It is also incredibly difficult to find photographs of like the bad parts of sure. Tule Lake. Um, and in fact, I think if you're watching along with us on the screen, the top right, um, I believe that that picture was taken by Ansel Adams. Oh yeah, Ansel I Adams. He did that. Yeah, he was sent to go take photographs, um, and make the camps look like no, it's not that bad. Look at this beautiful mountain. I mean, yeah. Um, but it's very, very difficult to find actual photographs of the guard towers and the barbed wire
1: and. Well, yeah, yeah. because it looks like Nazi Germany.
0: Yep. Yeah, it a hundred percent does.
1: For, um jeez like oh i cannot for, believe this is for two questions
0: yes yeah <sighs> and i mean not to say anything of those older so the um like the first generation you know or the the um the older japanese americans who had come over from japan they were called um issei and then the younger generation that was born in america was called nisei okay so all of the the issei i mean a lot of them didn't, you know, probably spoke both languages and maybe mm-hmm. weren't, you know, that familiar with the English language. And mm-hmm. imagine just answering no because you didn't understand the question. And now you're in right. this maximum security prison. It's just all kinds of awful.
1: It really is.
0: Yeah. So the Takeshita family was moved to Tule Lake where they would stay until 1945. Um, Yuzuru, like I mentioned earlier, he had heard rumors about these balloon bombs or these, you know, strange balloons that were being sighted, um, and he was very. Tule Lake is in California, but it's like right on the California Oregon border. Yeah, it's very okay. close to Oregon. Okay. Um, and, um, but he would not know that the balloon bombs were actually real until. Almost 40 years after the war. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So he's just hearing rumors um, at Tule Lake. Um, but meanwhile, in Oregon, what about our fishing
1: group, right? Ooh. From the first part of
0: the episode?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Mom with the 12 kids. I don't know. 12 uh-huh. kids. Yeah. And yeah. dad saying, Give me a minute. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't like this. <laughs> this is not going to be good.
0: No, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Um, so, to recap, you know, from where we left them, it was Saturday morning, May 5th, 1945. Archie Mitchell, who was the new pastor in town, uh, in the town of Bly, Oregon, decided to take a group of his Sunday school students fishing. His pregnant wife, Elsie, joined him with the six children. Uh, rough road conditions made them stop earlier than they had originally intended um, but they parked their car near Salt Spring and began unloading their gear the kids ran off with Elsie trailing behind them Um, and just a few moments later Elsie yelled out to Archie look what I found dear Um, Archie replied with just a minute and I'll come take a look almost immediately at 10.20am there was a massive explosion Archie rushed to them immediately and attempted to put out the flames with his bare hands. (gasps) He later told the newspaper, I hurriedly, hurriedly called a warning to them, but it was too late. Just then there was a big explosion. I ran up and they were all lying dead. Oh, my God. Yeah. The Forest Service worker who had warned them of the road conditions earlier ran over to help as well. Um, the group had stumbled upon an undetonated balloon bomb, and one of the kids might have poked it with a stick or somehow un- like disturbed it, mm-hmm. setting it off. Mm-hmm. Um, lost in an instant were Archie's wife, an unborn child. Alongside Eddie Engen, who is 13, Jay Gifford, who is 13, Sherman Shoemaker, who is 11, Dick Patsky, who is 14, and Joan Patsky, who is 13. Mm-hmm. Um So the sister of Dick and Joan Patsky, and her name is Dottie McGinnis, uh, she later described to her daughter in a family memory book the shock of discovering cars parked in the driveway um, and the heartbreaking news that two of her family members and neighborhood acquaintances had passed away. She said, quote, I ran to one of the cars and asked, is Dick dead or Joan dead? Is Jay dead? Is Eddie dead? Is Sherman dead? Archie and Elise had taken them on a Sunday school picnic oh. up in Gearhart Mountain. After each question, they answered yes. And at the end, they were all dead except Archie. Oh, my God. Yeah. So these are the only civilian casualties by en- enemy attack on mainland U.S. soil.
1: Um, children building bombs to kill other children
0: yes that's war hooray Mm -hmm. (sighs) so i mean they had there never been a thought in this small rural community that war Mm -hmm. would touch them directly in any capacity like Mm -hmm. not even a thought yeah um Stone writes in Pieces of Chain Reaction, within 10 minutes of the explosion, Forest Service members Barnhouse and Donathan had rushed back to Bly to help and report the accident. First to the sheriff's office and then to the chief forest ranger, F.G. Armstrong, who quickly phoned in the accident to the Lakeview Forest office. Then he and assistant ranger Jack Smith grabbed first aid equipment and sheets and followed Barnhouse back to the scene. They arrived around noon. Uh, Ranger Smith later said, nothing could be done. This was enemy action. The Navy people needed to inspect and make sure that there were no radiological, biological, or chemical contaminants before anything could be handled or moved. Yeah. So the military arrived around 5.30 that afternoon And after investigating, they determined that the balloon had been down for over a month, um, and it was probably buried under snow. And now with the snow melting, it had shown itself. Um, The debris was taken to the Lakeview Air Base for further analysis, um, and it wasn't until 8 o'clock that evening where Chief Armstrong began to notify parents of the deceased. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah all of whom he knew because mm-hmm. this was a very small community he mm-hmm. knows everybody and he has to go tell them that their mm-hmm. children were just blown up like mm-hmm. but is also getting pressure from the military not to say exactly what happened oh god mm-hmm. Um, and rightfully so, the parents demanded answers, mm-hmm. um, but the War Department had intentionally not alerted the public to the fact that these bombs were landing on American soil so that the Japanese would not be aware of how many balloons were making it over, but now children were dead. Right, yeah. Um. All of those directly affected were sworn to secrecy. <gasps> mm-hmm. No. Yeah. The official cause of death listed on their um, death records was an explosion from an undetermined source. So, what the fuck? Yep. Yeah. Um. Finally, a few weeks later, the Washington Post was allowed to print the following. Unexploded bombs may be found in isolated places and should be avoided. Some may be buried in melting snow. With the coming of warm weather and the end of the school session, it is desirable that people and especially ch- children living west of the Mississippi River be warned of this
1: possible hazard. Okay, have happened a while ago. Yeah, but those don't look like bombs. No, they're that, balloons. Right? Like, yes. That's a very important piece. <laughs> yes, that like you what? need to include. Yes. Because I would not see that laying on the ground and think, well, oh, it could be a bomb.
0: No. No, it looks like a parachute. It would probably look like a parachute yeah. or
1: something. Yeah. Oh, my God. hmm
0: A month later, the government allowed reports to identify what had caused the deaths of the children. <laughs> um, and then just a few months later, on May 7th, 1945, Germany surrendered, ending the war in Europe. But the war in the Pacific continued until August of that same year when America dropped their newly developed atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, causing Japan to surrender unconditionally. Hmm. Um, Something that I learned during researching this episode is that Nagasaki was not the original target for the atomic bomb. Oh, really? The plan was to bomb Kokura, which was that super large factory where the balloon bombs were being manufactured, oh, wow. along with the majority of Japan's military weapons were being manufactured
1: mm. there. And so all they their were... children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And all the
0: children. So that was the intended target. But because of poor visibility, the plane's course changed to Nagasaki, which just wow. seems like completely eliminate an entire city because of. Poor visibility, like right, I, I, yeah, war. It's just, I don't understand.
1: Well, we got to do something with this bomb. <laughs> but, god. <sighs> uh, in 1950,
0: the Weyerhaeuser Timber Company built a monument at the site of the Bly explosion. Um, it's called the Mitchell Monument, and it's constructed of native stone and displays a bronze plaque with the names and ages of the victims of the balloon bomb explosion. Mm. Weyerhauser donated the monument along with the surrounding land to the Fremont National Forest in 1998. So now it's a historic place or a mm. historic, historically registered place. Um, oh my next sentence. The museum site is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I have to mention a really weird tidbit. Like this doesn't really have anything to do with the balloon bombs, but it's just, you know, mean coincidences and all those weird creepy things.
1: Yes.
0: So Archie Mitchell, who was the pastor whose mm-hmm. wife died, you know, with all the kids, he ended up marrying the eldest Patsky sister, Betty. So her siblings had died in the blast. He marries her, right? They become missionaries in Indochina at a leprosarium, which is a leper colony, okay. in 1962. And the Viet- members of the Viet Cong kidnap them. After their capture, both American and South Vietnamese military intelligence agencies immediately discovered where the captives were probably being detained and confirmed that the Viet Cong used the missionaries medical expertise to treat their own sick and wounded. Mm. Um, And while military intelligence was able to successfully track their movements, the heavy and continuous Viet Cong presence in and around the area uh, where they were being held did not allow the military to mount a rescue mission. Missionary officials also attempted to negotiate for their release but those negotiations fell through, and no one knows what happened to them. No, they're ju- they're just gone.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's just, it's just- that's <laughs> wow. That's wild. Oh yes. my god. That so you <laughs> these two families would be touched so personally by two world wars that they mm-hmm. should have had absolutely no part in. Yes. Wow. Is that crazy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Super weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) God.
0: Um, And so that is where the story could have ended, but there's more. Uh, Stone writes that uh, this is just a a little beautiful passage, so I had to include it. War rains deep pain, physical, psychological, or both, down on everyone it touches. People handle this pain in many different ways. Some bury it inside themselves forever, never talking about their experiences or processing what happened to them. Others try to find ways to make some sense of, a senseless, of the senseless and begin to discover how to recover. Still others are moved to go beyond their open suffering and create ways to help heal their fellow human beings. Mm-hmm. And that's what Yuzuru Takeshita did. Oh. So here's the happy Okay. Um Yuzuru became a sociology professor. Uh, and he was a professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, as part of his work, he studied population planning, and he was consulted on a number of projects uh, in Malaysia, Korea, Taiwan, and Japan. And so whenever he traveled to Japan, he took time to meet with family and friends that were still living there, including a childhood friend from his time living in Japan with his grandfather uh, named Kazuyoshi Inui. Kazuyoshi was married to a woman named Toshiko, who mentioned to to Yuzuru uh, that there was a TV program being made about Japanese schoolgirls who made paper balloons for the bomb project, and that she had been one of those schoolgirls. So this was the first time the rumors of the balloon bombs had been substantiated for Yuzuru. Oh,
1: my God.
0: 40 years later. It's the 1980s right now. Um, And he was shocked. Yeah. Uh, so Toshiko... Was never told the outcome of the project. None of the girls were. They mm-hmm. were just making paper for these balloons and didn't really know what for or what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so Yuzuru immediately began researching once he was back in the States at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in D.C. Uh, he was absolutely stunned to find that not only was it real, the tragedy in Bly, Oregon had taken place just 50 miles from where he was incarcerated at Tule Lake. Mm. So Yuzuru read about the six killed and says, I saw those names and it shook me. Immediately, I wrote back to my friend's wife with the list of names and their ages and asked her and her classmates when they talk about the balloon bomb to offer a prayer for them. Mm. Yuzuru was invited to be a visiting professor in Japan in 1986, and while he was there, he saw a TV program featuring a school teacher, Yoshiko Hisaga, talking about the balloon bombs. Yuzuru was very uncomfortable with her phrasing when she stated that it was fortunate that only six had died from the balloons. Hmm. Later, Toshiko, his friend's wife, was interviewed for a film, and she, too, said Quote, to tell you the truth, when I heard that six people had died, it might seem a bit insensitive to say this, but the emotion I felt was that in war, people kill and are killed. With the nation at war, I did at first think it was only six people who died. Mm. Which, I mean, in the grand scheme of everything, right? I mean, I can understand their statement.
1: Compared to how many (laughs) Japanese civilians died Exactly. Atomic bombs.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, But Yuzuru kept coming back to the word only. Mm -hmm. And while attending a sociology conference in Japan, he was able to meet with Yoshiko Hisaga, the school teacher, and he told her about his connection um, to the bombs and his problem with the use of her word only when talking about human life. Mm -hmm. He was able to later write to her and give her the names of those killed, just as he did with Toshiko. And she called him, apologizing for using the word only and letting him know that she had been in contact with some of her former students and that they were moved to make amends.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yuzuru traveled back to Japan, where he met with Hisaga again, as well as three of her former students. He listened to their stories. Tetsuko Tanaka, the girl who dreamed of becoming a ballerina, was one of those women. Mm-hmm. She says, I started to feel a sense of guilt about what we had done. We felt that if we folded a thousand cranes to deliver to the people of Bly, we would express our deepest wishes for peace. I mean, (laughs) and these are just children who are forced to do these things. So they should feel no guilt. Right. This was not on them. But still, Mm -hmm. they're trying to do this gesture of peace. Mm -hmm. The women asked if Yuzuru would be able to get a message to the families of the victims in Bly. One of the messages said, "We participated in the building of weapons used to kill people without understanding much beyond the knowledge that America was our adversary in a war. To think that the weapon who made the weapon we made took your lives as you were out at a picnic. We were overwhelmed with deep sorrow and the passage of time troubled by a sense of guilt." Um, Yuzuru collected their messages along with the thousand paper cranes mm-hmm. and his daughter, Junko, was in charge of carrying the delicate cranes on the way home from Japan to Oregon. Uh, Yuzuru had no concrete plan, um, but he did have the phone number of Edward Patsky, one of the Patsky siblings. Um, and so he phoned him and he spoke to Patsky's wife, Opal, who invited him to visit. Um, Yuzuru met with some of the other family members of the victims uh, and gave them the messages. Um, uh, They gave them the messages from the Japanese women and organized a small ceremony for the 10th of August. Stone writes, draped over her arms, Junko carried the long string of 1,000 paper cranes signifying 1,000 wishes for peace. Each colorful origami bird had been hand-folded by the Japanese women who, once upon a time, had been those school schoolgirls hard at work making paper balloons to carry bombs. Yeah. The families of the victims gathered at Gearheart Mountain with the Takeshita family, along with the messages sent by the women who came together for this effort. Uh, Yoshiko Hisaga, Tetsuko Tanaka, Aika Chisaka, Ritsuko Kawana, Katsuka Media, and Toshiko Mizoba, oh, and Etsuka Shibata. Um, His saga's message read in part, We respectfully offer before you a thousand paper cranes we folded as a token of our belated expression of penitence and with our wholehearted prayer for your souls and for world peace. We are feeling ever more strongly now the depth of our crime and seek most sincerely that you forgive us for what we fully realize is unforgivable. Which is just devastating because they were children themselves. Like, it's not their fault. No. Um, All of the people involved, so the women in Japan, the Takeshita family, and the families in Bly remain in touch writing letters to each other.
1: Oh, my God. uh,
0: <laughs> oh. And in 1995, more than 400 people gathered again at the Mitchell Monument to recognize the anniversary. Yuzuru read a poem that he had written for the event. Um, and then a year later, 16 women from one of the schools in Japan, along with Tetsuko Tanaka, arrived in Bly, Oregon, where the people of Bly welcomed them with open arms. Aww. Elsie Mitchell's sister was one of the people there to welcome them. She said, I just feel badly that they felt so responsible for this incident because I don't believe they were. They were just little girls. I think it probably was pretty hard for them. Uh Um, The women knelt at the Mitchell Monument with incense in the Japanese tradition of atonement and said prayers and placed flowers and more paper cranes. It's just. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) Oh. <sighs> and that is what I know about the Japanese balloon bombs and the Bly tragedy.
1: Wow. Of World War II. Wow. So that was horrible and beautiful. <laughs> oh my god, great yeah. job. Wow. Um yeah. So I have a lot of recommendations. <laughs> okay. Okay. Ooh. Having a lot of feelings. I know.
0: I know. It's like it's it's a really lovely, sweet thing that that they did together, but still, mm-hmm. like, it's still sad. It's so sad,
1: yeah. And, and just thinking about all of the horrific things that have happened during times of war, and and not even just within mm-hmm. our own country, um, mm-hmm. and the fact that we as Americans don't atone for fucking anything.
0: Nothing. We just push it under the rug. Yeah, absolutely,
1: and we're yeah. missing out on this this beautiful thing that we could have.
0: Absolutely, yeah, oh. yeah, because it's just it's you know good for both sides mm-hmm. of you know whatever conflict. Yeah. <sighs> okay, tell us what yeah. to read. Okay, <laughs> well, for sure you have to read um, "Pieces of Chain Reaction" by Tanya Lee Stone because mm-hmm. it is. Phenomenal. I love it so much. Um, it's a J nonfiction, but it's told as like narrative nonfiction and it's it's just stunning. Have to read it. Okay. okay. And I do have some recommendations for the balloon bomb itself. Uh, but for the most part, I kind of stuck with uh, the Japanese incarceration mm-hmm. um, because it's a super important topic and we don't talk about it enough in America. So mm-hmm. the first is the documentary on Paper Wings. Um, and this is specifically about the balloons. Okay, so On Paper Wings is a documentary film about the lives of the Japanese and American civilians who were affected by the balloon bomb project and how they all came together 40 years later at the end of the war, after the end of the war. Um, so they interview a lot of the siblings of those who were killed in Bly. Um, they interview the majority of the Japanese women who made the paper cranes. Um, it's a really good documentary. I think it's only like an hour and twenty minutes, so mm-hmm. it's pretty quick. Um, and you can either purchase a digital copy or rent a digital copy um, from their uh, website via VHX. So I think it's like two dollars to rent it. So
1: okay, or check That's your library.
0: Good. Yes, yes, a lot of libraries do carry it. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. So for nonfiction, the first I have is another. This is probably one of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Seen and Unseen, um, what Dorothea Lange, Toyo Meitake, and Ansel Adams' photographs reveal about the Japanese-American incarceration. Uh, it's by Elizabeth Patridge. Uh, so uh, three photographers set out to document life at Manzanar, an incarceration camp in the California desert. Dorothea Lange was a photographer from a San Francisco best known for her haunting depression era images. Dorothea was hired by the U S government to record the conditions of the camps. Uh, This deeply critical of the policy. She wanted her photos to shed light on the harsh reality of the incarceration. Toyo Miyataki was a Japanese-born Los Angeles-based photographer who lent his artistic eye to portraying dancers, athletes, and events in the Japanese community. Imprisoned at Manzanar, he devised a way to smuggle in photographic equipment determined to show what was really going on inside the barbed wire confines of the camp.
1: Oh, my God. He built a camera. It's What?
0: Yeah. So good. And Ansel Adams was an acclaimed landscape photographer and environmentalist. Hired by the director of Manzanar, Ansel hoped his carefully curated pictures would demonstrate to the rest of the United States the resilience of those in the camps. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In Seen and Unseen, Elizabeth Patridge and Lauren Tamaki weave together these fo- fo- photographers' images, first-hand accounts, and stunning original art to examine the history, heartbreak, and injustice of the Japanese-American incarceration. It's J-nonfiction. Um, sorry, I would say J-nonfiction because library. Juvenile yeah. <laughs> nonfiction, um, if you're not familiar with library lingo. Uh, so it's it's written for children, but it's, it's stunning. Lovely. Um, next is Fugo: The Curious History of Japan's Balloon Bomb Attack on America by Ross Cohen. Um, so Ross Cohen provides a fascinating look into the obscure history of the Fugo campaign from the Japanese school school schoolgirl. I cannot say that word tonight. I know I've said it wrong (laughs) every time I've said it tonight. (laughs) The Japanese schoolgirls who manufactured the balloons by hand to the generals in the U.S. War Department who developed defense procedures. The book delves into panic, propaganda, and media media censorship in wartime. Fugo is a compelling story of a little-known episode in our national history that unfolded virtually unseen. I also read most of this one Mm. for this episode, um, so I got a lot of information from it. Okay. Um, and I think I got it on, or it's available on archive.org. So, oh, cool! Want to check it out from there? Um, and then of course they called us enemy by George Takei, um, George. George Takei has captured hearts and minds worldwide with his captivating stage presence and outspoken commitment to equal rights. But long before he braved new frontiers in Star Trek, he woke up as a four year old boy to find his own birth country at war with his father's and their entire family forced from their home into an uncertain future. In 1942, at the order of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, every person of Japanese descent on the West Coast was rounded up and shipped to one of 10 relocation centers, hundreds of thousands of miles from home, where they would be held for years under armed guard. They called us enemy is Tkay's firsthand account of those years behind barbed wire, the joys and terrors of growing up under legalized racism, his mother's hard choices, his father's faith in democracy and the way those experiences planted the seeds for his astonishing future. What does it mean to be American? Who gets to decide? When the world is against you, what can one person do? The answer to these questions to answer these questions, George Takei joins co writers Justin Isinger and Stephen Scott and artist Harmony Becker for The Journey of a Lifetime. And so it's a graphic novel memoir. Okay. Um, and then for fiction, I have We Are Not Free by Chase- Tracy Chi. Um, So this is about the collective account of a tight-knit group of young Nisei, so second-generation Japanese-American citizens, whose lives are irrevocably changed by the mass U.S. incarceration of World War II. Fourteen teens who have grown up together in Japantown, San Francisco. Fourteen teens who form a community and a family as interconnected as they are conflicted. Fourteen teens whose lives are turned upside down when over 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry are removed from their homes and forced into desolate incarceration camps. In a world that seems determined to hate them, these young Nisei must rally together as racism and injustice threaten to pull them apart. Um, it's a young adult fic- fiction, and it's just – it does such a good job of explaining, you know, the the terrors of the, the incarceration camps, but also that these teenagers were just trying to be teenagers. Like, they yeah. have crushes and, you know, have to deal with all the teenage crap <laughs> mm-hmm. while also being imprisoned. Like, right. yeah, uh, it's so good. Um, and then I just finished this one, Beneath the Wide Silk Sky by uh, Emily Inoyo Huey. Um, and this is about Sam Sakamoto, uh, who doesn't have space in her life for dreams. With the recent death of her mother, Sam's focus is the farm, which her family will lose if they can't make one last payment. There's no time for her secret and unrealistic hope of becoming a photographer, no matter how skilled she's become. But Sam doesn't know that an even bigger threat looms on the horizon. On December 7th, 1941, Japanese airplanes attack the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. Fury towards Japanese Americans ignites across the country. In Sam's community in Washington state, the attack gives those who already harbor prejudice an excuse to hate. As Sam's family wrestles with the intensifying discrimination and even violence, Sam forges a new and unexpected friendship with her neighbor, Hiro Tanaka. Hiro Tanaka. When he offers Sam a way to resume her photography, she realizes she can document the bigotry around her if she's willing to take the risk. When the United States announces that those of Japanese descent will be forced into relocation camps, Sam knows she must act or lose her voice forever. She engages in one last battle to leave leave with her identity, even her family, intact. Uh, Emily Inoya Huey movingly draws inspiration from her own family history to paint an intimate portrait of the lead up to Japanese incarceration, racism on the World War II home front, and the relationship between patriotism and protest in this stunningly lyrical debut. And it really, it was such a wonderful book. Um, and it takes place in such a short time frame. So like from Pearl Harbor to... To the incarceration of Japanese Americans, it was months, like just such a short time frame. So um, it's like really like compulsively readable because Mm -hmm. you know what's coming, but it's uh, it's stunning. So um, the next is When the Emperor Was Divine by Julia Atsuka. Uh, On a sunny day in Berkeley, California in 1942, a woman sees a sign in a post office window, returns to her home, and matter-of-factly begins to pack her family's possessions. Like thousands of other Japanese Americans, they have been reclassified virtually overnight as enemy aliens and are about to be uprooted from their home and sent to a dusty incarceration camp in the Utah desert. In this lean and devastatingly evocative first novel, Julie Otsuko tells their story from five flawlessly realized points of view and conveys the exact emotional texture of their experience. The thin-walled barracks and barbed wire fences, the omnipresent fear and loneliness, the unheralded feats of heroism. When the Emperor Was Divine is a work of enormous power that makes this shameful episode of our history as immediate as today's headlines. I have not read that one but I probably will. <laughs> that sounds good. Um and I have <laughs> some more fiction. <laughs> um this one is I had to include it. Yes. Have you have you read this one? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I mean. Um so this is Love in the Library by Maggie Takuda Hall. Um and it's it, it's stunning. It's a picture book. Um and I mentioned this specifically because of some controversy surrounding it. <laughs> you heard about it. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, but just in case you, uh, those listening have not heard. So the book was originally published by Candlewick Press in 2022. Uh, and then soon after, the author received an offer from Scholastic wanting to license her book, um, which is usually great news. You know, it means usually means more Uh, Eyes are shown to the, you know, put on the book and Mm -hmm. she gets more publicity, all that good stuff. However, Scholastic wanted some edits made to the book. Uh, They had crossed out a key section that references the deeply American tradition of racism. According to an article on NPR, Scholastic gave its reasons for the suggested change in an email to the author and her publisher, Candlewick Press, citing a politically sensitive moment for its market and a worry that the section goes beyond what some teachers are willing to cover with the kids in their elementary classrooms. Scholastic deal – their deal was contingent on the removing of that wording as well as removing the word racism from the author's note. Um. And so Maggie told NPR, when you omit the word racism from a story about the mass incarceration of a single group of people based on their race, <laughs> there's mm-hmm. no compromise to be had with that mm-hmm. if you can't agree on basic facts. Yeah. Uh, after she spoke publicly about this scholastic issue and apology... Um, Whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they're still in talks to possibly license it. Um, that, you know, nothing has been finalized yet, but she's not removing anything from her book. Right. So, the book is about uh, Tama, who is sent to live in uh, a war relocation center in the desert. Um, all Japanese Americans from the West Coast, elderly people, children, babies now live in prison camps like Minidoka. To be who she is has become a crime, it seems, and Tama doesn't know when or if she will ever leave. Trying not to think of the life she once had, she works at the camp's tiny library, taking solace in pages bursting with color and light, love and fairness. And she isn't the only one. George waits each morning by the door, his arms piled with books checked out the day before. As their friendship grows, Tama wonders, can anyone possibly read so much? Is she the reason George comes to the library every day? Maggie Takuda Hall's beautifully illustrated, elegant love story features a photo of the real Tama and George, the author's grandparents, along with an afterword and other back matter for readers to learn more about a time in our history that continues to resonate. So... It's really good. Yeah, it's so sweet. And then there's um, Displacement by Kiko Hughes, which is a young adult graphic novel. Uh, So Kiko is on vacation in San Francisco when suddenly she finds herself displaced uh, to the 1940s Japanese-American internment camp that her late grandmother, Ernestina, was forcibly relocated to during World War II. These displacements keep occurring until Kiko finds her. Kiku finds herself stuck back in time living alongside her young grandmother and other Japanese American citizens in internment camps. Kiku gets the education she never received in history class. She witnesses the lives of Japanese Americans who were denied their civil liberties and suffered greatly, but managed to cultivate community and commit acts of resistance in order to survive. Kiku. Goo Hughes waves a riveting bittersweet tale that highlights the interge- intergenerational impact and power of memory. Mm.
1: Um,
0: so those are all of the books.
1: I love a time travel book. Oh yes, mm-hmm. yes. When they meet yeah. their like their ancestor. Oh, so good for sure.
0: So that's <laughs> that's Japanese balloon bombs and oh, wow all of the books that I have been binging and <laughs> there's. I will. A lot of stuff is finally being published about this time period, which is Mm -hmm. way too late, but good that it's happening. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. God bless George Decay. Oh goodness. Yeah, he was pretty much one of the first, huh? I mean, there was, I think there was a memoir written in the eighties, but I mean, still, he really
1: kind of like pushed it back into cultural dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Wow. Review. Oh shoot! Oh my god, I was (laughs) I was so wrapped up in that story that I forgot that I had things to do. Um, yes, I do. Oh, okay. So this one is um a review for the cookbook called Microwave for One.
0: Oh my god! By Sonia
1: Allison. So, I, oh. I actually have two reviews for this. So, the first one okay. is a five star review, and it says, The Perfect Gift for the Permanent Bachelor with a Limited Palette in Your Life. <laughs> uh, and the second one is a one star review that says, If you like to cook raw chicken in your microwave, this is the book for you. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's hilarious. No. That's there. <laughs> oh. How about you?
0: So I'm kind of just realizing now that mine, I feel like it, I might be the only one who finds this funny. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um so a book that I did not mention uh but is could be a recommended read for this episode is The Fervor by Alma Katsu, um who writes historical horror. And so she The Fervor is a historical horror based in one of the incarceration camps. Um but my uh review is for one of her other books that I have also recommended uh in my Daughter Party episode. Um, and that is The Hunger uh, by mm. Alma Katsu. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it's a one-star review and it says, I seem to see this book cover everywhere. So I decided to buy a copy and see what the buzz was about. What a disappointment. The premise of the plot sounded so promising. The Donner party with a supernatural twist. I figured I would be reading a historically a historical novel with maybe ghosts or the like. The results were, as I said, disappointing. Not only is there not much history, it's mostly about the characters bickering with each other. That's the whole fucking That's Donner a- party.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> That's it. That's it.
0: That is the history. <sighs> oh, my God. <laughs> but you don't get a feel for the terrain, the times, or the traveling. None of the characters
1: are likable. Nope. <laughs> they sure aren't. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> also, the real history. Yeah, these people were at their fucking wits' end. (laughs) Yes! All have
0: secrets and are backstabbers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The main character is not even George Donner. Instead, it seems to be narrated by Charles Stanton. Who the heck was Charles Stanton? Oh my god. Well let me tell you he was the bachelor of the group who had no family and so he rode ahead to go bring them back supplies okay uh mm. <laughs> it's really, really funny. yes the hunger did mention that the donner party left too late in the season they squandered their time and food and they trusted an untrustworthy guide who incidentally was not part of their party but were supposed to meet him at the base of the mountains but the donner party was dawdling so badly that they missed the guide who got tired of waiting that's
1: it yeah Mm -hmm. what more history what did you think happened (laughs) like this is it
0: (laughs) all in all the hunger is really about stupid people who all want to pick
1: fights with each other i don't recommend this book (laughs) wow oh my god oh my god i love that and giving that one star review like claiming that she learned nothing she gave like the perfect (laughs) succinct summary of the daughter party that was the whole thing (laughs) wow yeah amazing
0: (laughs) now i need to find something else to be fixated on because (laughs) i'm still stuck in it Yeah.
1: yeah i know I was thinking, like, as you're talking about all the other, like, World War II topics I want I to do, and I'm like, There's okay, so I, I, this, I mean just save this.
0: <laughs> this is now the World War II podcast. Welcome.
1: <sighs> I promise that my episode next week is not about World War II. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a little break. Yeah. And then we'll be back No. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, thanks for listening. Thank y'all. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Reference Desk.
0: If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.
1: If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash The Reference Desk.
0: And if you're interested in purchasing any of the books we discussed today, visit our bookshop storefront at bookshop.org slash The Reference Desk Pod.
1: You can find us on Instagram at The Reference Desk Pod, visit our website at TheReferenceDeskPod.com, or drop us an email at ReferenceDeskPod at gmail.com. This episode was written and produced by us. Our music is Say Salavi by Eric Harper, and our cover art for the show is by Maria Amaya. Until next week, we'll see you in the stacks.